Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and after breaking for most of August, the U.S. Congress reconvenes this coming Monday. So you know what that means. Let the political celebrity sightings begin. Because, yeah, we're not Hollywood, okay? But here in Washington, D.C., we do have our share of Illuminati. From senators and representatives to a certain world-famous resident of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So on this week's show, we're exploring the theme of fame. Only we decided to go beyond all the famous monuments and memorials for which Washington is best known and head out to, say, the Chesapeake Bay, where you'll find a famous but endangered island. It is the closest thing to heaven I'll ever get to on this earth. We'll meet the women recreating the legendary flag that once waved over Baltimore's Fort McHenry. This flag, the Star Spangled Banner, it really does say something about who we are and what we find important. And we'll check out a new play that explores the lesser-known side of one of Washington's most famous inventors. I think most people who see this play are going to say, good Lord, I didn't know that Alexander Graham Bell had anything to do with that. Plus, we'll hear about a more infamous local character, the man who founded the American Nazi Party right here in Arlington, Virginia. Really, you know, he's responsible for creating neo-Nazism in the United States. First, though... Andy Warhol once said, in the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. But in a tiny town in Montgomery County, this, my friends, is the sound of Brookville, Maryland. You'll meet people who claim that, I am looking for 205 Market Street. In the past, to 12, to 11, they were famous for about 15 hours. So this would be it. The Madison House. There's a plaque on the side. In this house, August 26th to 27th, 1814, President James Madison and Richard Rush, Attorney General, were sheltered after the burning by the British of the public buildings at Washington. And because the president took shelter in this house in Brookville for one night during the War of 1812, Brookvillers believed it was capital for a day. Architectural historian Sandy Heiler owns the Madison House with her husband, Duane. I gave a little talk in Baltimore last year, and the person who introduced me said, since the founding of the United States, four places have served as its capital, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and Brookville, Maryland. (laughs) Um, A little background, if, like me, you're a wee bit rusty on the War of 1812. The American Revolution against the British ended in 1781. But we didn't feel like our mother country was sufficiently backing off. So it wasn't long before we got fed up. And in June 1812, Congress declared war on Great Britain. We started off with our share of victories, but by 1814, the tide had turned... On August 24th, 1814, we lost the Battle of Bladensburg. And right after that, the British marched into Washington and set fire to a bunch of public buildings, pretty much destroying the U.S. Capitol and the White House in the process. In the the week, week and a half leading up to that, when everybody knew that the enemy was coming, and they had been really vicious, you know, on the eastern shore and other parts that were east of Washington, they burned towns. And so people in Washington thought, that's what's in store for us. So, says Sandy Heiler, everyone who could flee did. Wherever there was a road, and there was a town at the end, that's where they fled. In other words, places like... Frederick and Leesburg. And... Rockville and Brookville. But Brookville, Heiler says, was especially enticing. It was a Quaker village, populated by 150 generous, peaceful, law-abiding souls ready to feed, clothe, and shelter even the strangest of strangers. These are pacifists, but they took care of everyone. Everybody is equal in the eyes of God. And since you weren't likely to find British soldiers anywhere near Brookville... The soldiers are 
to the east of Washington. They might be going to Annapolis or there on the Potomac. The town was viewed as particularly secure. The Secretary of State, James Monroe, warned the clerks at the Senate, the House of Representatives, and the State Department to save the documents. And so the Senate clerk packed up the Senate's copy of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the records from the beginning. And he had just bought up a farm in Prince George's County, so he took them there. And when he got there, the boss said, no, Brookville is much more secure than this. So they took them all the way back and up the Brookville Turnpike and brought them here. Thus, says Heiler, for an on-the-run president looking for a place to A, carry on governmental affairs, and B, crash for the night, Brookville looked pretty darn good. On the evening of August 26, 1814, he arrived, along with General John Mason, some cabinet members, and 20 mounted troops, or dragoons. They started across the street. They went to the biggest house in town, which belonged to the founder of the town, Richard Thomas. And for security reasons, the dragoons were not mentioning that the president was with them. And Richard Thomas, I'm sure he regretted this later, said, I have absolutely no room. My house is completely filled with refugees from Georgetown and Washington. So they crossed the street to this house, which was then owned by an engraver and acquaintance of the president named Caleb Bentley. And um, they agreed, yes, you know, we can take the party. President Madison's first order of business was not so much governmental as gustatory. Um, the president said oh, he was really hungry. It's 9 o'clock at night and they hadn't eaten since very early in the morning when they were still in Virginia. So the ladies here cooked the fifth dinner of the day and served it in this dining room. And speaking of this dining room, we probably should talk now about the house itself. It's changed ownership a number of times since 1814. And when Sandy and Duane Hyler bought it seven years ago? It was not in terrific shape. But they've been working hard to fix it up and restore it to its former glory. And we won the Washington Post contest last year for the best restoration of a historic home in their area, which was Maryland, Virginia, the district. Their efforts are especially noticeable in the front parlor. Everything in this room is original. So this is the original heart pine floor and the windows. You know, some of the windows are cracked, but I hesitate to replace original glass just because it's broken. But you'll find the house's main attraction up the creaky wooden stairs on the second floor. So this was Henrietta Bentley's bedroom. This was the best bedroom, and so this was where the president stayed. As for what might have constituted the best bedroom in a house built in the 1790s, well, for one thing... The fireplace mantle is bigger and fancier than the others. And for another? This room had a closet. Closets were just unheard of in the 1790s. After the president's sleepover, he and his retinue returned to Washington, where he and his wife, Dolly, eventually settled at the Octagon House, just blocks from the White House. That's where, in December 1814, Madison signed the ratification papers for the Treaty of Ghent, which ended the War of 1812. Now, the president's Brookville visit was a short one, to be sure, but it's one the town's residents will never forget. As they're quick to tell you, it did make them U.S. capital for a day, after all. That's why they're planning a big 200th anniversary commemoration of the event for next Labor Day weekend. Our objective is to come as close as we can to recreating Brookville in 1814. So we'll have all of these people doing living history, and then we'll have reenactments of the Senate clerk bringing the papers, the soldiers coming through, and finally President Madison and um, General Mason, who will be played by Governor O'Malley. Sandy Heiler says 2014 will bring commemorations all across Maryland. But the Brookville event, she says, is truly one of a kind. 
A lot of these commemorations will focus on the bravery of the military, and some of them will be commemorations of events that were pretty tragic. The burning of Havre de Grace, St. Michael's was attacked. The Brookville commemorations are really a celebration of incredibly brave, decent people who, as, as one of them, Henrietta Bentley, who lived here, said, we welcome and give refuge to everyone. That's our, that's our goal. On October 27th, the town of Brookville will hold a special Madison Supper to raise funds for next year's commemoration. For information on that supper and to see photographs of the Madison House, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Continuing on the whole War of 1812 theme, might the name Mary Pickerskill ring any bells? She's the one who created the massive star-spangled banner that oh so famously waved over Baltimore's Fort McHenry during the war. 200 years later, the Maryland Historical Society has recreated the iconic flag with the help of dedicated volunteers and curious citizens. Lauren Ober brings us the story of the flag's recreation and the woman whose work helped inspire America. On a recent Saturday afternoon, more than 500 people made their way to the Maryland Historical Society in Baltimore to do one small thing, to make a stitch. Just one, not two or 10 or 20, one little stitch. But all those stitches combined are helping hold together one really big flag. The strategy is to make the stitch strong and, if possible, not too small. This year, the Historical Society embarked on an ambitious project. With a team of volunteer stitchers from quilting bees and embroidery clubs all around the region, it's recreating the Star-Spangled Banner. That was the giant flag that flew over Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor during the War of 1812. It was also the flag that inspired Francis Scott Key to write what became our national anthem. And this year marks the 200th anniversary of the flag's most triumphant moment, when it signaled defeat of the British fleet during the Battle of Baltimore. George Armistead, who was the commander at Fort McHenry, wanted a flag, a big flag, basically for morale, big enough that the British could see it from a distance. That's Kristen Schenning, the Historical Society's Director of Education. So the flag was made, and it was flying at Fort McHenry for over a year by the time the Battle of Baltimore happened. And and that's really where this particular flag gains its significance. The original Star-Spangled Banner is kept in a special climate-controlled chamber at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History here in D.C., It's tattered and much smaller than it was when Mary Pickersgill assembled it. No one can get up close to the flag anymore, which is part of the reason for the recreation, Shenning says. They can go to the Smithsonian, they can see the original one, and it's so cool. But to be able to actually get your hands on, to to understand what it would have felt like, you know, to understand how the fabric moved, you know, and how the stitches went into it, how it flies. This is hands-on history. People can touch this flag. If Shenning sounds pretty pumped about this project, it's because in a way the Star-Spangled Banner is coming home. Pickersgill was a native daughter of Baltimore and made flags for merchant vessels. When George Armistead commissioned her to create the Star-Spangled Banner, Pickersgill's talent was put to the test. Pickersgill, her daughter, her two nieces, and a 13-year-old African-American indentured servant 
worked round the clock to piece together the massive flag. What's really kind of funny, she has this very tiny little house between Fells Point and Jonestown. She can't lay this flag out in her house. It is much too big. So she has to go to Claggett's Brewery, and she uses their large rooms there to lay out the flag. At 30 by 42 feet, the original flag was as tall as a two-story building. The recreation is just as big. Today, a flag that size made from nylon would be so heavy it would pull the flagpole down. So, like Mary Pickersgill's original banner, the reproduction is made from loosely woven wool bunting. So when you hold it up, you can see through the fabric pretty well. It's really only going to weigh between 50 and 60 pounds. So it'll be light enough to fly, and it'll be light enough that the wind will actually go through the fabric and help it lift. While the fabric might ensure that the flag flutters on the staff, it's been a bear to work with, says Shenning's mom, Beverly. She's an avid quilter and the volunteer section leader responsible for the flag's 15 stripes. It's slippery. It has a mind of its own. It won't take a crease. It looks like cheesecloth. It's that porous. On this day, Beverly is helping visitors put in their one stitch. So are you going to show me how to do this stitch? Okay. So you put your hand around the stripe, your thumb on top, your fingers underneath. You're going to stick your finger with the needle. Luckily, it's just a blunt embroidery needle, so no possibility of puncture wounds. Beverly tells me to insert my needle into the bunting and then count over three threads before bringing the needle back up through the fabric. Then she reminds me to check my work. You look underneath and you see your needle, pull it all the way through, and you have a successful stitch. Okay, and I'm looking underneath to see if it's there, which it's not. It's not, so it slipped out because it's this funny, slippery fabric. I I failed my first stitch. Okay, all right, we'll try this again. Two more attempts, and my stitch is finally successful. You got it. That's better. You got it. (laughs) The public stitching part of the project has drawn visitors from all over wanting to make their mark on the modern Star-Spangled Banner. Joe and Tiffany Sorrentino and their boys, Evan and Brayden, are visiting from Atlanta. Everyone in the family gets a turn with the needle. Is this how they make a real American flag? Yep. No way. The Sorrentino stitches are on the middle of the bottom red stripe. And when the flag flies, they might just be able to catch a glimpse of their sewing. And maybe they'll get to feel a little of the pride that Mary Pickersgill must have felt seeing her handiwork gallantly streaming amid the rocket's red glare, giving proof through the night that America remained the land of the free and the home of the brave. I'm Lauren Ober. The recreation of the Star-Spangled Banner will be raised over Fort McHenry on September 14th. You can learn more about the Star-Spangled Banner project and see photos of the flag on our website, metroconnection.org. for a break, but when we get back, dire warnings about the future of a famous island. This is happening in a lot of places, uh, and there's just so much you can do to try to maintain what's been in the past. Plus, the infamous tale of the man who established the American Nazi Party. Our country, from its inception until the 1960s, was a white supremacist country. And that is not that long ago. And we have to be really, really vigilant of not returning to those kinds of views. That's coming up on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5.
WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. This week, our theme is fame, and in just a bit, we'll visit a celebrated island in the Chesapeake Bay and hear why some residents fear their community is being wiped off the map. First, though, we'll bring you a story that's really more about infamy than fame. This is George Lincoln Rockwell here on behalf of the white Christian majority of Americans. What he meant to say was he's a Nazi. Mr. Rockwell, you are a Nazi, aren't you? I am. That's Arlington, Virginia resident George Lincoln Rockwell, along with talk radio host Joe Pine. Rockwell founded the American Nazi Party in the late 1950s, giving birth to the modern neo-Nazi movement. He was part of a racist backlash as the civil rights movement was gaining momentum 50 years ago. Rockwell and a few dozen so-called stormtroopers took up residence in Arlington in a prominent house they covered with an enormous swastika. In 1963, while civil rights workers were preparing for the March on Washington, Rockwell was touring Virginia, drumming up support for a counter-demonstration. Jacob Fenston has the story. Fellow Virginians, fellow white men. Just eight days before the March on Washington, George Rockwell spoke to a white crowd in Lynchburg, Virginia. Now the purpose of this March on Washington, there is only one reason for it. And that reason is to terrorize your Congress. He rails against the Civil Rights Act Congress was debating. This is the vilest law that has ever been presented. And with each racist joke or diatribe, the audience is right there with him. Do you know that the police department of Washington, D.C. is seriously concerned about the sanitation problem with all these black people marching all over our parks? Rockwell was riding high in 1963. Support for his anti-Semitic and racist message seemed to be growing. He thought he'd see 10,000 supporters on the National Mall on August 28th. Reporting from Washington Police Headquarters, this is Michael Rice. I have just talked with Major Carl Allen of the American Nazi Party. This is from live coverage of the March on Washington by the Educational Radio Network after one of Rockwell's men was arrested. Allen was disappointed with the small number of his sympathizers assembled today. About 125, he claimed. Most white people must be showing their disapproval, Allen speculated, by staying away. Rockwell's racism wasn't unusual in 1963, but in post-World War II America, his admiration for Adolf Hitler was unheard of. He was the first person after World War II, and, you know, sort of the knowledge of the Holocaust became known and the horrors that had happened under Hitler's regime, to take an overtly pro-Hitler position. Heidi Byrick tracks hate groups for the Southern Poverty Law Center. Without Rockwell, she says, there might not be neo-Nazis today. Really, you know, he's responsible for creating neo-Nazism in the United States. What's your view on the way that Hitler dealt with the Jews of Germany? This is from a Canadian television interview in the 1960s. I think Hitler dealt with the Jews of Germany the same way he dealt with all traitors, the same way we will. Rockwell's Uh, statements were shocking and meant to be so. He said traitors should be executed, and he claimed 80% of Jews in America were traitors. Do you model yourself on Hitler? It's impossible. I look upon Hitler 
if I were religious, I would say Hitler was the second coming of Christ. I think Rockwell Hitler gravitated to the D.C. area in the late 1950s because he wanted to be close to the center of power. That also put him at odds with a liberal local community, says Herman Obermeyer, who published the Northern Virginia Sun. Arlington probably had the most liberal government in the state of Virginia at the time and very likely the most liberal government in metropolitan Washington. County officials were in constant clashes with Rockwell. He was arrested, his house was searched, two of his troopers went to jail for attacking a 13-year-old boy. It was almost impossible to be involved in public life in Arlington, Virginia in 1963 and not be aware of him. His headquarters on Randolph Street was right in the middle of what is now Boston. And so everybody passed and he had a big sign a swastik, and then uh, white man fights stopped the black revolution. Arlington didn't want Rockwell, but he presented liberals with a conundrum, how to shut him up but not trample on the ideals of free speech. The consensus among Jewish leaders was that the best option was to ignore Rockwell. If the media didn't cover his antics, it would starve him of publicity and funding. It was called the quarantine. It drove him crazy. Fred Simonelli is a history professor and wrote a book about Rockwell. It was impoverishing his movement. One of the things that he depended on were the basket loads of letters he'd get after some particularly outrageous demonstration where he'd open up a letter and 5 or $10 would fall out of the envelope. And, and that's what his party survived on. You can't and shouldn't sweep it under the rug. If you could walk down Randolph Street or walk down Wilson Boulevard and see this, in the city where I lived, and I made my living. Herman Obermeyer is Jewish. He fought in Europe during World War II, and so seeing swastikas in his town got under his skin. His paper was one of the few media outlets to consistently defy the quarantine policy. I was a particularly difficult problem. I was a Jewish publisher, and I was defying their policy when the highly respected people at the Washington Post were buying into their policies. For more than 20 years, Obermeyer's paper closely covered the Nazis' activities, from school board meetings to their marching in the local Bicentennial Parade in 1976. Rockwell's presence may have galled Arlingtonians, but it was also a testament to free speech, says Fred Simonelli. Many of the things he said were advocating killing people replicating the horrors of the Holocaust here in the United States. And he was allowed to say that, I think, and rightfully so. As hateful as that is, that's the price we pay for free speech in this country. Rockwell's end came in 1967. In a strip mall parking lot, he was shot from a laundromat roof by an enraged former follower. And Rockwell was dead within seconds. Rockwell's stormtroopers splintered, forming some of the main neo-Nazi groups around today. Some stayed in Arlington through the mid-1980s. Heidi Byrick with the Southern Poverty Law Center says it's important history, even if the American Nazi Party never had more than a few hundred card-carrying members. Our country from its inception until the 1960s was a white supremacist country. And that is not that long ago. And we have to be really, really vigilant of not returning to those kinds of views. Her organization has tracked a dramatic rise in the number of hate groups nationwide over the past decade, sparked in part by fear of the country's growing immigrant and non-white population. I'm Jacob Fenston.
We'll venture off the mainland now and out to the middle of the Chesapeake Bay. That's where you'll find Smith Island, a place most famous for Maryland's official state dessert, the many-layered Smith Island cake. But if climate scientists and sea level rise experts are right, Smith Island might soon be famous for something else. Disappearing. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson brings us this story on the community's fight to defy the odds. 56-year-old Chris Park sits across from me in a booth at Peaky's Restaurant in Princess Anne, Maryland. The warmth he radiates comes with an unmistakable sadness. I ask him about the hint of despair in his voice, and he says it's simple. He's a Smith Islander who isn't, for the moment, living on Smith Island. Last October when Hurricane Sandy uh, hit, uh, this may sound crazy, but the only place I wanted to be was on the island, you know. That, I mean, I've been through hurricanes there, and, you know, uh, I, I felt bad that it wasn't there. Park's health forced him off the island, and it remains the only thing keeping him on the mainland. He's a recent cancer survivor and went through much of the ordeal on the island, working a job without health benefits, something he doesn't want to repeat. I've been going through cancer without health insurance. I needed to find a job with benefits, and I, fortunately I was able to do that. He now works for Somerset County's planning department and lives in Crisfield, a 25-minute boat ride from his beloved island. The prognosis on his cancer is good. But his own prognosis on the place he loves is far from optimistic. The shoreline is eroding, has been for a long time, and it is starting to put houses, some of the infrastructure like roads, in jeopardy. According to the Army Corps of Engineers, parts of the island's shoreline are washing away 8 to 12 feet each year. The island has lost more than 3,000 acres to the sea over the past 150 years, shrinking its land area by more than half. And Parks is just as worried about the erosion of the island's human population, which hovered between 700 and 800 during his childhood, but now sits at 276, according to the latest census numbers. Out of this year's high school graduating class, out of, I think, the four that graduated, three have left for college. One's going to try and stay there and become a waterman. Those are not good odds for the future. To see Smith Island for myself, I recently hitched a ride on the Island Bell 2, an official U.S. mailboat owned and operated by Captain Otis Tyler. Tyler is reticent to be interviewed at first, but all I have to do is ask him about Smith Island's supposedly bleak future and the floodgates open. People saying we're sinking. We're not sinking. The erosion's getting us, but we're not sinking. I mean, if we're sinking, the whole East Coast is sinking. And as far as Tyler is concerned, Smith Island will stick around, despite a lack of attention from those in a position to help. You know, we got a governor that's never been here. This is eight years he's been our governor. He's never stepped a foot on Smith Island. He don't care for us, and we don't need to care for him. Once you're on the island, the first stop for many tourists is the Bayside Inn, where you can grab a bite to eat, including a slice or two of Smith Island cake. Rebecca Kitching is a waitress at the Bayside. She just turned 16, so she's one of those young people the community would desperately like to retain. But she wants to be a teacher, and she says that means her future looks brightest 
off the island. There's not really much of a life to live here. I mean, you can't, there aren't a very, very big variety of jobs. Here it's basically the men crab, the women pick, or find other little small jobs. So there's not too much to do. To kill some time on my visit to the island, I rent a golf cart from the bayside and tool around Ewell, the island's main harbor. The skies are stunningly clear, and the only thing to spoil the sunny quiet of the day is the occasional biting fly buzzing around my head. On days like today, it's easy to see why Smith Islanders would have such a hard time accepting that the same dark blue waters that have supported their way of life could also be the engine of the community's demise. It's simply beautiful out here. But University of Maryland professor Ed Link, a world-renowned expert on sea level rise and climate change, says though the science is still uncertain, the data point in one direction for Smith Island. Environments like the Chesapeake Bay that have a lot of land that is close to sea level, in an environment of, of rising sea levels and perhaps stormier conditions, they're in for some bad times. And we need to start planning what is pragmatic to do about that right now. Just how quickly Smith Island is washing away may be up for debate. But for Chris Parks, perhaps all the arguments over erosion rates, seawalls, and state assistance for Smith Island are beside the point. On a regular basis, I find myself driving down to the water and looking at it over so I can see the island. Just just to know that it's still there and that, you know, if and when I can get back, it'll still be there. That, that's, uh, that brings me more peace and comfort than anything else in my life. It is the closest thing to heaven I'll ever get to on this earth. So while Parks may be a realist when it comes to the future, he's most certainly a romantic when it comes to the only place that's ever felt like home. I'm Jonathan Wilson. In a few weeks, Jonathan will dig more into the science behind what's happening to Smith Island and how the state of Maryland is responding to climate change and sea level rise for its coastal communities. So stay tuned. Next, Alexander Graham Bell is best known for inventing the telephone. But what about the other parts of his story? We're so enamored of Bell as the telephone man, and he had a lot more going than that. Plus, how a name-changing singer-songwriter defines fame and success in the music biz. You know, fame and fortune, that's just smoke and mirrors. I think of it more in in a blue-collar way. I get up and I build songs. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're going to make it to heaven and light up the sky like a flame with a show about fame. In just a bit, we'll hear a local musician's take on the typical rock star dreams of fame and fortune. And we'll visit a bar that may not be famous, but it has a very dedicated following as we continue our series, DC Dives. 
But first, in April, the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History stumbled upon a most remarkable find. It was a wax cylinder recording from April 1885. And as you're about to hear, it's fuzzy, but the speaker is famous. In case you couldn't make it out, that voice... Hear my voice. ...belongs to a renowned Washingtonian of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, one Alexander... Alexander... Graham... Graham... Bell. Bell. The one snippet of his voice that we do have on the recently discovered Smithsonian wax recordings have him sounding a bit theatrical. Speaking of theatrical, this is actor Rick Fauché. But I doubt that he spoke that way all the time. Mabel, I'll have oatmeal this morning. But uh, when he stood on stage, probably he sounded a little bit like that. And in fact, soon he will be standing on stage, in a way, as the National Geographic Society continues its 125th anniversary celebration with its first ever full-blown theatrical production, a one-man show titled Bell. Rick Fauché is playing the title role, and he wants everyone to know he won't just be yammering about the telephone. You know, the groundbreaking invention Alexander Graham Bell patented in 1876? We're so enamored of Bell as the telephone man. That's who we think of him as. But he had a lot more going than that. And yet, says Jeremy Skidmore, who's directing Bell, few people are aware of it. In fact, until this show, Skidmore himself was in the dark about Bell's non-telephonic achievements. He didn't know, for instance, that Bell invented a precursor to the iron lung after his infant son died from a breathing disorder. I didn't know that he was in the fight to invent the first airplane, and the airplane that he did build flew faster and higher than any of the airplanes that existed at the time. Nor did he know how passionate Bell was about hearing, speech, and working with the deaf community. Bell actually met his deaf wife, Mabel Gardner Hubbard, when he was hired as her speech tutor. And it was Mabel who brought about something else Skidmore had never known about Bell. I didn't know that he was the second president of National Geographic. Indeed. Bell's father-in-law, Gardner Green Hubbard, was the first president of the National Geographic Society. And when Hubbard died in 1897, Mabel convinced her husband to take over an organization that was, in truth, kind of a mess. The National Geographic only had a 1,000 members. The magazine wasn't being read by very many people. It wasn't a success. Jim Lehrer wrote Bell. And yes, that's the same Jim Lehrer from PBS NewsHour and the presidential debates. He writes novels and memoirs, too. Quite the Renaissance man. But anyway, Lehrer says Alexander Graham Bell turned the National Geographic Society around. First, he hired a bright young kid named Gilbert Grosvenor. Bert, they called him at the time. He was just a kid. To edit the Society's magazine. And that's when the magazine really took off. Then Bell helped open up the Society's membership so anybody could join. Up to that point, it was pretty much a closed society. It was kind of for rich people who wanted to take long trips, you know, that kind of stuff. All of the momentum began with Alexander Graham Bell in cooperation with this young kid who eventually ended up marrying Bell's daughter. And indeed, the Groveners and the Bells have been intertwined in Washington ever since. Fun fact to ponder next time you're at the Grosvenor stop on the red line. But one of Jim Lehrer's favorite little-known stories about Alexander Graham Bell has to do with his invention of the metal detector in 1881. And uh, how he tried to save the life of uh, James Garfield, who had been shot. And uh, they couldn't figure out where the bullet was. So Alexander Graham Bell decided to... uh, 
created advice to use on Garfield in the White House in, in, in bed, suffering badly. But, says Lehrer, Bell's metal detector didn't work on the president. Uh, he believed that the reason it didn't work was because he was on a mattress where there were metal springs under it. Every time they tried it, it was going. It was a humming sound, and he finally figured it out. But the doctors wouldn't let him move him. They wouldn't let him try. The president eventually died, of course. Bell was devastated, but in 1882, he concluded that, quote, the death of President Garfield and the subsequent post-mortem examination proved that the bullet was at too great a distance from the surface to have affected our apparatus. In any case, it's an amazing story and just one of the many amazing stories Jim Lehrer uncovered as he conducted research for his play. There was a discovery stage in each case that was really fun. So, oh, my God, I didn't know that. And, of course, that's journalism. That, that, that comes from journalism. Oh, my goodness, I didn't know that. And granted, some of these discoveries were about the more controversial sides of Alexander Graham Bell. Again, actor Rick Fauché. In the deaf community, there are some people who think he's anything but a hero. Because of his methods of speech education for the deaf, he thought something called oralism or visible speech would be better for the deaf community, much more than sign language. And uh, I think he stood in the way of the development of that. When it all comes down to it, Fauché says, Bell the man was, after all, just a guy. And Bell the play portrays him as just a guy, albeit a guy... Who was full of ideas and full of life. He couldn't sit still. And he was excited about finding better ways to do things, to design things, to make life better for us all. Bell runs September 12th through the 21st at the National Geographic Society in Northwest D.C. with a special performance interpreted in American Sign Language on September 14th. For more information, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Well, back in Our next story also has to do with performance. In this case, performance of a musical sort. Andy Ziff has spent more than 10 years in the local music scene, earning name recognition the hard way, with lots and lots of gigs, both in the Washington area and across the country. But with his latest album, Reunion, he's tossing that name recognition out the window by recording under a new name, The Coward's Choir. Emily Berman met up with Ziff in his band's rehearsal space in the back of an Arlington church. She asked him about his new songs and how living in the D.C. region has influenced his view on the typical rock star dreams of fortune and fame. Music-wise, you're starting a new chapter. Can you talk about the sound of Reunion in comparison to previous albums? The, this, new, this new release, Reunion, the EP, the core of it is live performance. And the new sound is about just capturing the, the performance and maybe showing some flaws a little bit. No, and they're not flaws, really, just the humanity in it. And I think that's probably a, a, a common complaint that the humanity in music is kind of being lost because it's all right, I can auto-tune it. And I, my friends, you know, that I'm playing with now, these guys can really play. They can really sing. And two tracks, A Better Lie and Reunion, are largely all live. So I have to say A Better Lie is one of my favorite songs oh, cool. from 
from your album, and I want to listen to a bit of it right now. Okay. So that was A Better Lie by the Cowards Choir. So I noticed you offer your music for free. <laughs> and you can listen on Spotify. You can download it for free through links on your website. You can pay through iTunes. Mm-hmm. What is your personal philosophy when it comes to, to sharing your music like that? You're not going to really make much money by selling you know, downloads of music unless you're maybe Rihanna. I want people to hear the music. And I want folks that hear this that song to come out and see us play in a room i mean that's the point there's something different that happens when you're in a room in front of an audience and that that connection is the 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 whole point so you tour nationally but you're based here in northern virginia right how do you like being a part of of this scene in particular Mm -hmm. when folks think of dc they don't think of music and and the arts so i think some of it gets overshadowed but i i love this area and i'm not trying to you know be like i'm gonna put dc on the map i'm based here but i actually make a living by by traveling hopefully i can be in an you know kind of an ambassador in a way for for this area the dc music scene has been known for like punk mm-hmm. and um post-punk you are not that not that exactly. <laughs> so how do you how how do you fit in and where do you f- fit in the landscape? You know, when I first started playing the DC music scene, DC proper, you know, Discord Records, Fugazi. It's intimidating to a guy that can't. I think w- I draw from more of an Americana sound. Um, the DC scene is is growing it's it's not just hardcore post-punk anymore so when it comes to like fame and fortune as a musician what are your goals and do you think you can achieve them based here in the dc area you know fame and fortune that's just smoke and mirrors i that's not my goal you should do what you love sometimes it's it's tighter from month to month and so i think of it more in in a blue collar way I get up and I build songs. Andy Ziff, thank you so much for for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. That was Emily Berman speaking with Andy Ziff, a.k.a. The Coward's Choir. You can catch two upcoming shows in Northern Virginia. We have details on our website, metroconnection.org.
We'll end today's show by raising a glass to the local bar scene with our series, DC Dives. What is a dive bar? It's a glorious dump. It's got to have an interesting staff and an interesting crowd. It's got to be dark. It's got to be old. Typically, it's got to be cheap. This time around, Jared Walker takes us to a dive tucked away in a strip mall in the heart of Arlington's Westover neighborhood. It's early on a Friday night, and I'm at the Forest Inn. There's a small but lively crowd watching the Nationals game on a television in one corner of the room. So I squeeze into a wooden seat at the end of the bar and join them. There I meet Dave Batten, a regular who's been frequenting this dive for more than 10 years. Dave explains why the room feels crowded, even when it's not. It's like about a 20-seat bar with like six booths that are up against the wall. It's a pretty small place, L-shaped. It doesn't hold a lot of people, 50, 60 people, something like that at the most. The bar, which has three decades of history in the neighborhood, has been in its current location since the mid-90s. And for years, until Virginia's smoking ban was enacted in 2009, was a pretty shabby place. If you were in here for a few hours and then you went home, you basically had to stand in front of the washing machine and take your clothes off because they would reek of nicotine. These days, though, the Forest Inn is smoke-free and has a relatively new coat of paint. But it hasn't lost its quirkiness. As I'm chatting with Dave, I notice something fascinating about the room. The kind of idiosyncrasy that makes a dive a dive. What's, what's on the top row of the liquor cabinet in the back? On the very top row, they have elephants. And the elephants are sacred to the owners. The owners are, uh, are Hindu from India. And so they collect elephants, especially elephants with the uh, trunks turned upright, because that is a, uh, a symbol of luck. Do people donate elephants to the collection? Yeah, they do. People have brought elephants in for, I don't even know how many years, probably at least 20 years. Some of them are ceramic, some are glass, some are plastic, uh, you know, there's all sorts of elephants, all, you know, no matter where you look, there's a bunch of elephants up there. (laughs) Bar manager Ken Chowdhury says this endearing and surprising cross-cultural exchange started in a purely organic fashion. It was started with the one, two, only three elephants and... Then other people, whenever they were going to the uh, vacation, stuff like that, and everyone start bringing a little bit gift for, you know, their favorite bar. And, I mean, look at that now, you know, how that we end up with all that big collection over there. And people they still keep on bringing that. Most of the folks who brought these offerings to the bar are regulars, a varied bunch spanning several generations. Just been here for so many years. You have people coming here of all ages, from you know, retirees in their 60s, 70s, and maybe even 80s, uh, up to restaurant workers that are younger that you know that are discovering the place now. One such worker is 26-year-old David Calhoun, who grew up in the area and works at a beer garden just down the street. How is this place different than newer places that have popped up in the last few years? You've got a lot of people that grew up in Arlington. Uh, it's fantastic. You know, a lot of the places in Clarendon, you know, courthouse area, is that people move in here and they're like, oh, well, we're not going to have any time dealing with the locals. Let's go here. But this is more of a community type base. So, I mean, my grandfather knew his grandfather. My grandfather knew this guy. You know, it's, it's kind of cool. The only beer on tap at the Forest Inn is Budweiser. And Linda Theodore, who's tended bar at the inn for nine years, says this kind of simplicity is what endears the place to people. It's not formal. We don't have tablecloths. We're just a basic, you have your basic menu, 
your basic drinks, nothing fancy. Um, you don't have to dress up. But it's more than that. It's home. I know everybody. It's just home. Denise Lober, a transplanted New Yorker who lives in Westover and frequents the bar regularly, echoes that sentiment. They treat me like family. They treat me like they've known me forever. They don't treat me like I've only been here 13 years. And they don't treat people that have only been here a year like they're new people. It's, it's, a, it's a family atmosphere <laughs> in a really dysfunctional way, but it's a family atmosphere. I'm Jared Walker. Do you have a favorite local dive bar you'd like to suggest for our series? If so, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Walk like an angel. Talk like an angel. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Berman, Jacob Benston, Jonathan Wilson, and Jared Walker, along with reporter Lauren Ober. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our brand new intern is Stephen Yenzer. Welcome aboard, Stephen. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of the show, you can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you a show we're calling Latino D.C. We'll look at the role Latinos are playing in Virginia's gubernatorial race. We'll learn why many immigrants in our region are falling victim to notario fraud. We'll head to Columbia Heights to visit the Gala Hispanic Theater, and we'll dig into Mexican cuisine as part of our Eating in the Embassy series. Plus, we'll ask the question, if Washington's Latino community is growing, why aren't we seeing more Latinos in city politics? The Latinos are still with the mindset of we got to survive. You know, we just got to work and work and work and work, and education is like second thing for us. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.